Southwestern family of companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. Are you interested in advertising with the Action Catalyst? Our listeners could be hearing about your brand right here, right now. For details, shoot us an email at info at theactioncatalyst.com. Welcome to the Action Catalyst. This is Dan Moore, and I feel very privileged today. We're going to be spending time today with Ellen Petrie Leance. You know, not a day goes by when we're not influenced by something from Apple, by something from Google, by something from Facebook. And today, we're going to be spending time with Ellen, who not only was an observer, but one of the engines that caused all of those aspects of our lives to be what they are today. She's had an incredible continuing impact. She is an author, a businesswoman, educator, entrepreneur, and truly one of the pioneers in the online community. Having gone to work with Apple back in 1981, she created the Apple User Group Connection, started by herself because of the need of the users. And that focus on customer service and the, and the user needs is a hallmark of the things that she's done. She's worked with Google. She helped Facebook get their development platform underway. She is an accomplished speaker. She spoke on the subject of happiness by design at TEDx Berkeley and currently is sharing her knowledge through the continuing studies program at Stanford University. She's a regular contributor to Arianna Huffington's Thrive Global Platform and author of the book, The Happiness Hack. Ellen, it's just such a pleasure to have you on the Action Catalyst. Welcome. Thank you so much. It truly is a pleasure to be here. And as uh, you took me down memory lane there, Dan, with recounting some of the wonderful opportunities that I've had and the incredible learning that each of them has brought me. And I'd, I'd be um, be very proud to share with your audience that there's something that I'm also doing now that is, um, in addition to the things you've mentioned, um, I've joined a company called LucidWorks, which is a technology company that is a foundational platform for search, machine learning, and AI. And I'm doing something that's deeply satisfying to me and seems to bring all of the threads you mentioned together. And that's I'm serving as chief people officer, taking all I've learned over the years and doing anything I can to make it available to our growing team of uh, researchers, data scientists, technologists, and people doing all sorts of other things to help our business grow. So I'm very, I'm very, uh, very grateful to be here. Thank you. Well, I think it's fabulous. And I love the title Chief People Officer. Mm-hmm. Would that we all could have that same attitude toward what we do. Right. <laughs> now, interestingly enough, uh, you were an honor student, of course, raised by hardworking parents. Uh, father was an inventor. Mother was always hardworking. You were excellent in school, a National Merit Scholar, graduated from San Diego State with a BA in international marketing. But in some ways, it was a bicycle accident that led you home and then led you to send a very fateful letter. Could you share a bit about that? <laughs> Absolutely. And thank you. Yes, I, I appreciate hearing about my my parents. My father was a very hardworking man, an entrepreneur himself at a time when we didn't use the word entrepreneurs, but he was in the uh, automotive lift inventing and manufacturing business, hydraulic lifts for cars. And my mother was, boy, think about my mom, a, a homemaker and one who used her intelligence and talents in so many ways. And not a day goes by that I'm not 
grateful for the tough lessons she taught myself and <laughs> my four siblings. They make us roll our eyes sometimes, but we were sure glad she taught us. So you're right. I had um, graduated from, from school at San Diego State University. And one of the things that's important to mention here is I'd put myself through school. Although my parents were very hardworking people, they, um, I think I lived, I grew up in a time when not, where education, higher education wasn't a given for all young women. And so I did not have family support when I determined to go to college. So that was a journey that I, I forged on my own and um, have never regretted, needless to say. But from my graduating class at the time of about a little less than 100 girls, only seven of us went on to higher education. So first, I want to have a, a, a shout out to all who have participated in in changing times. And mm-hmm. um, I'm very uh, glad that that is not the story that most women in this country will tell as they go forward. Um, so, but I had graduated from college and I had a, an internship for an import export company in Brazil. Language has always been very uh, important to me and very interesting to me. And I'd studied Spanish and Portuguese uh, as part of my education. And um, mostly I think it sounded like an adventure, but if I look back and I'm really honest with myself, it was a very poorly planned adventure. And I honestly feel that something of fate intervened when I went on a bike ride with some friends a few days before my plane was to take off for Rio de Janeiro. And really, as I want to say, a rather ill-planned trip because <laughs> um, I was hit by a car and it was a pretty bad accident, fortunately not worse than it was. Um, and I ended up having to fly home to do what no college student wants to do, and that's uh, sleep at her parents' sofa for a period of time. And it took me a little bit of time to recover, and um, I really didn't know what I was going to do next. I was kind of lost and confused uh, and really didn't have a direction. Um, But my father said to me one day, Ellen, you're not going to Brazil. You don't have any money, and I'm not giving you any. And you need to get a job. And he literally tossed the San Jose Mercury News uh, at me. So I'd read the one ads. One of these companies would be willing to hire someone like you. And I was doubtful that that was true. And I certainly didn't want to work for a tech company after having spent more time than I would have liked in the Fortran lab as part of my freshman year. But um, I did want to use my languages. And I did want to have the opportunity to see more of the world than I'd seen to that point. So I applied to many companies and received rejection letters. I'm, I'm pretty sure from more companies than I actually applied to. There were a couple in there that I'm, I'm sure just decided to reject me even though I hadn't sent my resume, but, or at least that's how <laughs> I remember it. But one of them came from a company that um, hadn't popped out to me when I read the black ink on the you know newsprint of the San Jose Mercury News because when the envelope came, it had a rainbow apple on it. And I've always loved the arts and I've always been curious about, you know, sort of artistic expression. When I saw that beautiful Apple logo, something clicked. And the thought that went through my head, still very vivid for me, is any company that would do that understands that there's more to the world of business than just business, that it really is about people. And um, my second thought was, I sure hope this isn't a rejection letter. Well, it was. 
And I don't know why I did what I did next, but I think I was operating from pure intuition. But I went into the phone and they hung on the walls in those days and I dialed 408-996-1010 and asked for the extension of the person who'd sent the rejection letter. And very cheeky of me, still don't know quite how I did it, but I said, I think you've made a mistake. And something in that conversation did change my fate because um, and I really want to call out that was at a time when people actually you know, answered phones and talked to people about jobs rather than having it be something that was submitted digitally, which is sort of, in a way, much less human. But something in our human connection at that time literally changed my life because she did say at the end of the call, you know, there is one thing that came up a couple of days ago. And I ended up interviewing for that job and joining Apple with a start date of November 3rd, 1981. And spent most of the next nine and a half years of my life um, really enjoying the journey that Apple presented to me. Oh, my goodness. And credit to you for picking up the phone and saying there's something not right about this rejection. They had no good reason to reject (laughs) me, so I have nothing to lose by making the phone call. Nothing to lose. But, you know, Dan, I'm so glad you said that because isn't that true for every listener in your audience? You know, when we get that sort of gut punch feeling that we know that something isn't quite right. There are so many reasons not to act on that. Yet when we do act on that, when we really feel that it is something that is important, and we we feel it in our bodies, but when we act on that, we actually have the opportunity to change our faith. You know, she could have said to me, hey, thanks a lot, we'll keep you on file, you know, pretty much what the letter said. And I you know, I might have had another excellent adventure, but thanks to that moment, that was the adventure I ended up having. And um, what a what a beautiful adventure it, it was. I, I really can't imagine having experienced some of the learning that I did at Apple anywhere other than there. Lucky me. Well, absolutely true. But I think what's a very powerful takeaway for all of our listeners is that when you feel something is right, don't be afraid to act on it. And you felt like they'd made a poor decision. It wasn't correctly reflecting what you think of that company. And had you not picked up the phone, you would have been dealing with the pain of regret. There's always fear of rejection in starting something, but the pain of regret's worse. Thank you so much for saying that. You know, certainly we've all asked ourselves a question, if I'd only, or what if I had? But the lucky thing is, I don't have to ask myself that question about Apple. I did give it a try. Thank you for calling that out. Mm-hmm. So important. Now, I, we could spend literally days, and I hope somebody at some point will do that and have you describe all the things that happened at Apple. But you were the very first user evangelist, really advocating for the users as opposed to the sellers and the manufacturers. Mm-hmm. How, did, how did that come about? And how did how did that change the way you view the relationship between companies and their and their customers? Mm. Great question. So it came about in a in an interesting way. We had lost, I believe, some of that sense of connection and sense of faith from that early community of Apple users who were very enthusiastic about our products by turning away from the Apple II line. And you know, every business has to um, move away from prior products at one point or another, but doing it right is really important. And um, I think there were some people who felt we really weren't doing it right. So the position of user evangelist was created by John John Scully, who was our CEO at the time. Steve had recently left the company. Mm-hmm. And um, 
I believe that some people from the user community had come to John and said, you really need to do this. You need to find a way to connect users more strongly to the company so that uh, we keep faith in you and so we continue to build you know, an, an affinity with the company. But I think nobody knew how to do that. And certainly I didn't know how either. And um, I've said before that walking into the office on the first day of that new job in um, I think it was in late September 1985, all I saw were these stacks of letters that came from all over the world telling stories of people who had had certain hopes or aspirations for their work with the Apple II product and now weren't quite sure how they were going to move forward. And we knew this was a problem that couldn't exactly be fixed. It wasn't like we were going to you know, change our strategy or move away from our commitment to the Macintosh, move back to this legacy product. But it was like, what, you know, how can we do something and what can we do? And how can we bring the voices of our users together to continue to uh, provide community around, or you know, community isn't the right word. I don't think we've really come up with that yet, but, or that anyone had really, you know, identified that that's what we were doing. But provide, I would say, um, a sense that the product still had value and contribution to make, even as the company that had made those products moved moved away from them and um through a series of fortuitous events and generous contributions from some of those people who had not only written these letters sharing their frustration and and anger and disappointment and by the way those can be very very valuable information sources because when people are frustrated or angry or disappointed we have something to learn about how to get better as we go on but when i called those people they generously shared their time and were very willing to express their frustration and one of the people that i spoke with um i like to think that it was a gentleman from nasa who has turned out to have a a, a very illustrious career there but i think it was he who said you know, don't you realize that we are sharing information with each other through BBS, bulletin board systems, and that Apple could do that too? And I said, no, I, I didn't realize that. How does that work? And he, you know, kind of, <laughs> how can you not know about this? What we do is we attach our computers to modems and we share information with each other over, you know, through modems, over telephone lines that connect to other modems, and we can transfer information from computer to computer. And I thought, oh my gosh, we should be doing that. Now, you know, it's a great story, but the real thing that sticks with me is what I, I, I learned from that. And that was, again, something felt right to me and I acted on it. And there were probably a hundred reasons not to act on it. And as a matter of fact, there were plenty of people who told me it was a terrible idea or that we would, you know, that why couldn't we just mail them the information rather than send it over a modem? You know, this was before email, mind you. Mm -hmm. This was the proto-proto-internet, ARPANET, DARPANET, Usenet, the well. So it was a very, very bold and innovative thing to say, hey, we're going to share information electronically. But in my gut, it made sense. It was simply a better way. It was, we didn't have to put something in an envelope and mail it and have the time and the expense of all of that. We could simply put a disk into a computer and transfer information to another person. It's impossible for people who weren't around at that time to know how audacious and revolutionary that really was. But again, it made sense. And I'll bet in your listener community, there are things that, you know, probably people are driving to work one day going, I don't know why we don't do it this way. It makes so much sense. But the resistance to doing it that way is so strong because people like to stay in their safe zone, their comfort zone. 
I would love to invite any listeners who've had that feeling to say, are you sure you don't want to push through and really champion this thing? Because you might not only change your career and your experience of it, but you might change something even bigger in the world. And don't we all want to do that? Ultimately, people do want to do that, Ellen. They lack the belief in how they'll find the means and how they'll find the energy and how they'll find the audience. And you're helping provide those clues. I hope so. But can I go in with a neuroscience approach to this? Absolutely, you can. I'd love it. I think this will be, it's a fun way to explain it. And I I hope it'll be valuable to your listeners. Your brain has a big job to do, and that's to keep you safe and alive. Remember that the brain is an ancient technology that we use to navigate the modern world, whatever world we live in, but this is our modern world. And the brain wanting to keep you safe and alive has an opinion, if you will, that everything you've done has been absolutely perfect and you shouldn't change it because the evidence is in. You're safe and alive. It's done its job to perfection. And so literally on a cognitive level, the brain resists risk-taking and resists um, new behaviors. It makes it harder for us to do new things or to step out of our comfort zone. And yet there's another part of us, whether it's in the brain or somewhere else, we don't really know. Nobody knows. There are many different beliefs on it. There's a longing all of us humans have inside ourselves to do something bold and to step out of our comfort zone and to go beyond what the brain is telling us to do, stay safe, you know, stay small. And it is that step that really leads us to a higher, I think, human intention and sense of satisfaction than we get simply by listening to those either habitual voices or outside voices that are better at telling us what we can't do than in telling us what we can do. So if somebody feels that innate drive and that desire to make a difference and to do something beyond their current comfort zone, but they're confronted with the chains that comfort zone and self-image can often put on us. What are ways that people can feed that desire, feed that vision, so they finally achieve some kind of escape velocity? Wow. We're going to want a long talk for that one because that's such an important question, Dan. So first of all, we have to think of our brain set. And I just described, it's what I call a brain set. And the brain set is about survival, keeping us safe and alive. Now, a mindset is more of an intentional way of thinking that points us in a direction that we want. And by the way, left to itself, the brain will decide what all the mindsets are. And it'll just say, keep doing what you're doing. This is what it's like. That's good enough. Why change? It's dangerous to change. It's risky to change. But if we select a mindset that's like a growth mindset or something that's very intentional about something that we want to achieve, we have then literally primed our brain cognitively to prepare itself to act on those, those, um, on that intention. But preparing the brain is not enough. We have to practice so that the brain actually begins to encode a new behavior and make it part with time of a new brain set. And we can't change our entire brains, and certainly we wouldn't want to, but we can change many things about our attitudes and outlooks. And the way to do it once we have the mindset is through skill sets. And skill sets are just small practices, little things that we do to enact the mindset that will eventually become our new way of of thinking, processing information, and being not only safe, but comfortable and confident in the world. So skill sets can be things like 
asking more questions. So if we want, for example, let's say we want a growth mindset. We want to get out of the habits of saying, this is what's like, what life is like, and I want to be, this is the way it is. I'm sort of stuck with it. We can say, no, I want to learn and grow. Then a mindset might be to say, okay, I'm going to make every day a learning experience. What am I going to do about that? I'm going to ask more questions. When I notice the response, it's a very human response to when I'm asked a question, I immediately come back with an answer. I'm going to pause for a moment to make sure I'm not getting triggered and that I'm being responsive to the question, not reactive. Maybe I'll gather more information. Maybe I'll say, um, I'm curious to know what's behind your question so I can give you a better answer. If we want a learning mindset, we might also say, you know, I'm going to enroll in a community college class and go one night a week. As someone who taught uh, adult education at Stanford and continuing studies at Stanford, I will tell you that many people who came to my classes, it was the first time they'd ever taken a class since they graduated from college. But, you know, even today, I shared an update with my alumni group from that class and what these people have done since they've adopted this new, you know, curiosity about the world of business and their potential and learning, it really, it really catalyzed something or really accelerated something in their own growth and certainly their satisfaction. Or we might say, you know, I'm going to make it a habit to do more reading than I've done. Or simply sit down, put the phone away, make eye contact with, you know, a person that matters to me in my life and learn more about them than I've ever known before. Just a commitment to expanding who we are in a way that feels um, deeply satisfying. So any skill set or practice that acts on the mindset that we have intended will ultimately change things in our brain set in what I call a virtuous cycle where life, I mean, I'm really not joking, gets more interesting and more satisfying rather than the less so that so many people talk about. Oh, my goodness. I'm glad I've been sitting down, Ellen, because this is so powerful. And in all my years of working with people and doing reading and teaching about mindset, I've never encountered the thought of brain set versus mindset and how powerful that distinction is. Thank you. Thank, thank you so much. You know, when that one hit me, I, I knew that there was something worth sharing there and the, the sort of three level build of brain set, mindset and skill set. In fact, I spoke about it a few weeks ago um, with a really wonderful audience, a, a group of people who were looking to be more innovative. And at the end, someone said, will you please write your next book about this topic? And I said, you know, that had never occurred to me. Thank you. I think you might be onto something. <laughs> well, I think you were onto it, and I'm glad that person catalyzed you, just like the NASA person said, why don't you use these electronic communication systems? Yes. But wait a minute, Dan. Isn't that what it's all about? Like, aren't we supposed to connect with each other in open and empowering ways so that we elevate the ideas that are, you know, possible within us and within and among each other? I mean, it's funny when someone recognizes a skill or a capability or an interest that we have, don't we respond really fully to that in a sort of a, a better version of ourselves way? I think that's why you probably produce this podcast is to share those little sparks with people so that they go, ah, oh, I thought I was the only person who thought this way, or maybe I really can do this thing I've been thinking about. Isn't that what we're really here to do for each other as people? It absolutely is. And you are a hundred percent on theme. So well done, teacher. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> You're making this very easy, Dan. Thank you. This is what it's about. Sometimes when I'm speaking to audiences, and I often speak to college students, I say, let me share with you how you can get much better at dealing with humans, and it'll only take one finger. And then on the screen, it says, slide to power off. <laughs> Just connect with people. Now, that is brilliant. That is absolutely, absolutely brilliant. You know, I think you know that quite a bit of my work has been exploring something that's really rising right now, and that is a deeper understanding of the role that technology is playing in changing our collective uh, human experience and even our brains. We are following motivation and reward loops in the brain through swiping our finger across screens, you know, 3,500 to 5,500 times a day here in the United States. Those are the numbers that show the average user to the power user. Um, and that those reward cycles literally change our brains. And I say reward, it's not the reward you're actually supposed to be getting 3,500 or 5,500 times a day. And by the way, once your brain becomes used to it, it's no longer rewarding. And who of us haven't experienced that with some of the, you know, things that we once used uh, on our mobile phones or in apps that kind of over time get less and less rewarding? Well, the thing is, the designers of those products know that they have to bring new things into those products to increase that reward over time so that you stay hooked, to coin a phrase, on on the use of their products. So powering off, boy, oh boy, that is a big topic. And um, one of the best things we can do for our mental health, our physical well-being, um, our emotional well-being, and certainly for the things that really matter in life, our relationships, our ability to contribute, and our personal growth happen when we are not staring at the screen or when we're, I mean, we all have to stare at the screen sometimes, but when we're staring at the screen less. What's well, interesting because the guest I spoke to just within the last hour said whenever faced with a seemingly intractable problem, he finds the best thing to do is to get on his mountain bike and only have to concentrate on avoiding the next rock in front of him. And then often the solution comes subconsciously. Well, he's absolutely right, because when he goes into a mode like that, where he is in a high, very high motor load on the brain, and also a lot of the very innate sort of, um, you know, the, the autonomous motor functions of the brain, the brain gets busy doing that job, mountain biking, and a very unique uh, integrative mode kicks in to the brain that processes information in a different way. It's called the default mode network, and some people refer it as the to the genius mode of the brain. Um, when we are in this busy, busy life that so many of us are leaving, leading, I beg your pardon, I am always gratified to hear of people who make time to get out in nature to do really wonderful physical activities like mountain biking or hiking or, you know, rowing or whatever it is that they do cycling. And then also even to make time in their day to simply reflect and space out, which we don't value very highly in our society of busyness. But it is in those modes where the brain uh, is occupied in, you know, sort of non, hmm, how would I say this, sort of non-executive, that's sort of the term that's used, functions, that this other modality kicks in. And this is the mode where the brain integrates previously unconnected information to create the potential for aha moments. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I often hear from people is, you know, I'm so busy, I don't even sleep anymore. And sleep is another mode where the brain integrates that sort of information. 
We have to remember, you know, we talk about an ancient technology that we use to navigate the modern world. We are biological beings. We are not these sort of, you know, sort of work bots that we've sort of convinced ourselves that we are. And we must balance and integrate our lives in order to function in the way that brings us satisfaction as human beings and actually in a kind of an ironic but interesting way actually makes us better at the work we are here to do when we sit down to do it. And I think a a starting point for that is correctly identifying what would make us happy. Because if people answer that question Mm. incorrectly, they'll be chasing rainbows a very, very long time. I'm curious what makes you, I want to hear more about that. That's a very, very interesting way to state it. Well, when people have ambitions and successful people always have ambitions, If they measure it in terms of business accomplishment, financial gain, number of employees, number of markets that they've entered, that's one form of satisfaction. But inevitably, Mm. as I've talked to people that have done all of those things, when they would hit a motivational block is when they had suddenly realized, I've been kind of going after the wrong things. And what really matters are the people's lives I've impacted, the lives I've affected. Very interesting. Uh, My family. That's where the joy is. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm saying is what, what do we really want is the most important question, in my opinion. And then work on wow. the mindset, the brain set, the skill set. Fabulous. Very, very. It's so, this is, it comes back to intention, doesn't it? And I, I love how you said this. And this is where, you know, looking back over a very long career, I have seen people who have followed and by the way, equally qualified, equally talented, equally charismatic, equally, you know, capable and, and, and deserving people who have followed very, very similar paths. You know, they've started in one place and they've headed in similar directions and they've done very similar things. And yet the outcomes have been quite different for, for, for one than for another. There is some of this that is out of our control. You know, there are external factors that happen that could create setbacks or, you know, things that we might not have seen coming. And so we have to really optimize our life journey for the things that we can control. And that is, you know, the, the, the intention that we have, the relationships that we choose and cultivate in our lives and the things we do to care for ourselves along life's journey. Um, and also our, our awareness and courage when it comes to taking appropriate risks and making decisions that keep us on track with those intentions. Um, We can control those internal things and we can be validated by those internal things. And my experience has been that the external things, you know, we, we can make our our best predictions about them, but they're not in our control. And that the validation from outside is never as satisfying as that validation we get when we know we've lived well. That is so important because as the old bumper sticker said, the one who dies with the most toys dies. <laughs> so. Wow. Absolutely true. This brings up some really interesting thoughts on really why are we here and, and what are we doing? And I feel, and I'd love you to challenge me if you don't think that's, this is, is so. I feel it's so, but certainly over, you know, my watch of the last, since the early eighties, you know, entering the workforce, I feel that uh, we attribute more of our self-definition to our, quote, career now than we did then. And I don't know that the trade-off is always worth it. I think defining ourselves as whole people who have careers, but not as people who are defined by those careers is 
a higher probability path to life satisfaction. And in fact, one of the things that I love about the company that I'm working for is the leadership team. You know, all of us, we agree. We want people to have healthy lives that they feel good about. And we know that they need time to recharge as humans so that they're able to come in and do their best work. And in fact, there's a little bit of an irony when we, we have sort of a mantra as a company because we're a company that fuels the deep technologies underlying machine learning, artificial intelligence, you know, mass scale search and so forth. But our mantra is honor people. Mm-hmm honor people through the way we treat each other and through the work that we do. We're not here to say that we want the machine to outpace or, or, you know, usurp human contribution. We actually want it to support human contribution in ways that make people happier, better, more contributory versions of themselves. Um, and to me, and again, I'd love your challenge on this, but I think some of that has been lost in much of the, the contemporary workforce. It's, it's possibly so. I'm certainly not a demographer or anybody that can follow longitudinal studies very well. But I think we can start with our young people. Uh, a study now has been run for mm. some 50 years out of UCLA on attitudes and values of graduating high school seniors that are heading off to university. And it has gone through cycles of very materialistic period of years to materialism is completely unimportant. And in fact, social contribution is what mm-hmm. counts to no security is what's most important to uh, today's youth are, mm-hmm. are more undefined even than before. So it's really hard to generalize. Um, I know 22 year olds that define wow. themselves by their work and I know 60 year olds that don't. So it's just a difficult thing for me to try to generalize on, but certainly worthy of study and, and mm-hmm. definitely worthy of personal observation. Yeah. It, well said. Thank you. And I'll, I'll look into that study, but certainly um, ties back into the theme of intention and how we set for ourselves and decide for ourselves what we really want from this journey, this life experience. Well, I love what you said. One of the values of your current company is to is to honor people. Very, very powerful. And in, in fact, when I was in high school, one of our history teachers posited that a person's job is what they do to generate money to pay their bills and do other things, but their work is why they're on earth. Mm. And if your work involves honoring people, that can be done in your job, outside of your job, anywhere. Very different than your J-O-B. Very, very nice. Thank you. Well, if I could ask you one, one other question. Many of our listeners are facing brick walls right now in their career path. They have obstacles that were not anticipated. They can't see around it or over it or under it. What are some, first of all, self-calming or perspective-gaining strategies that you have found helpful as you've hit various roadblocks in your career? Because no one that's done what you've done has had a totally smooth path. There's no possible way. And how would you generalize some of those into lessons that could be helpful to the rest of us? Okay, I'm going to try to answer this. I'm going to need your help, Dan, because I don't want anything to sound light or sort of, um, I don't know. I want these things to feel really tangible to people who listen. But it might surprise you and some of the listeners to say that I faced that brick wall in uh, about May of this year. Let me say more about that. I loved what I was doing. I loved teaching. Absolutely loved it. I loved um, the speaking that I was doing, the coaching that I was doing. Um, I was having a little bit of a hard time writing, mostly because of time, uh, time management and moving around so much. Didn't find those or didn't create those big blocks of time to really drop in 
to writing. And I was starting to feel a little bit frustrated because although things were going well on an external, from an external perspective, perspective, anybody who watched would have said, Hey, you know, it looks like things are going really well for you. You're doing all this speaking. Oh my gosh, just coaching the teaching. Yeah, it looked great on paper and it was wonderful. Don't get me wrong. But I had reached this point where I felt that I wasn't really growing the way that I wanted to grow. I wasn't, um, I, I felt like there was something more where I needed a new sort of challenge. And yet I didn't know how to get from here to there. And I, I spoke about it with a good friend and that would be my first piece of advice for any listeners. Have someone you can trust and really be vulnerable with them and say, um, I'm frustrated right now. I feel like I'm not moving in the direction that I want to move in. And uh, I guess I could accept this as good enough, but I don't want to. Will you hear me? Will you help me out? And he did the most touching, touching thing. He, um, he wore a bracelet. It's a bracelet that's a very simple one. It's just a washer, you know, like you would use in a, a plumbing project or something like that. But it, it had letters pounded into it. I think they're called intention bracelets or something like that. And it had the word trust on it, just the five letters, T-R-U-S-T, pounded in, you know, into the metal of the washer. And incredibly, he had worn this bracelet while he was facing a life-threatening illness that he was able to uh, move through and conquer and actually, you know, encountered some really great things along the way. So he took off his trust bracelet and gave it to me and said, Ellen, right now, you know, you're really in it. I see how much this is really bothering you, but there's, things are taking shape in ways that I'm sure you can't see keep working, keep asking questions, keep challenging where you are and being honest that you're not satisfied, and then throw in some trust. And so every day, I really tried to do all those things that he recommended to me, you know, stay really diligent to my process. Um, I did some journaling about what what would be better? How would I know that I reached this point that was better? You know, I certainly didn't want to say, oh, I want something new only to know that, you know, a short time later, I'd be frustrated again. I wanted to make a good decision. And I ended up working and came up with two paths that I wanted to follow. One of the paths was, so I gave myself two options. And this came after journaling and really pushing myself to think about it and talking with a few other friends. But one of them was to invest more deeply in my practice as a coach and as a teacher and actually address the part that I wasn't writing by hiring someone or trying to hire someone who could help me produce content. So that was one path. And the other path I didn't even know quite how to put words into, but it was something like this. I think I have one more real job in me. You know, I made the air quotes when I said real job, meaning I think there could be maybe a company out there that I'd like to do something deep and meaningful with. It would have to be the right thing. And I, I think I knew subconsciously it would be a chief people officer sort of role because I love working with people and teams so much. And then other than that, just staying diligent and staying in the world and really letting, oh, here's another important thing, letting myself feel the discomfort of this. The discomfort is information. It's telling me that I want something more. And then out of the blue in July this year, my a good friend uh, with a company that I'd coached called me and said, you know, I want to tell you something. We're starting a search for a chief people officer. And we see all the things you're doing. We're pretty sure that, you know, you're happy with what you're doing and you wouldn't want it. But we didn't really want to go farther on this path without telling you that we're hiring this person. We thought it was something we wanted mm -hmm. you to know about. 
I couldn't believe my ears. And I actually said back to to Will, he's the CEO of of LucidWorks, I said, what makes you so sure I wouldn't want to know more about that? (laughs) And, you know, if I hadn't really trusted the process, I think I might have done something impulsive and maybe not really figured out what I wanted enough to know that when I heard this, that this would be, it was a hard decision to make because I knew I was leaving some things I really valued behind, but that this was something I could deeply commit to, to create a change that he and I both believed in and um, to find something that brought me a new level of satisfaction. So I guess my brick wall advice would be, first of all, make yourself vulnerable to someone whose opinion you deeply, deeply value. Two, put on the virtual trust bracelet trust. Sometimes things work in ways that we don't understand until we're on the other side of that brick wall. And then the third piece is be diligent every day with yourself. Don't dumb that feeling of dissatisfaction down. Really say, this is here because I'm ready to move to something beyond what I've done so far. And then engage yourself through the mindsets and skill sets in practicing that. Journal about it. Take online surveys. Um, talk to other people who've done what you're thinking you might want to do and engage yourself in that work. And if you don't end up exactly where you thought you would end up, my experience has been not just with me, but with many people, sometimes you even end up someplace Mm -hmm. better. Ellen, I am so grateful that we have been recording this because it is brilliant insight. It's exactly what the purpose of this podcast is about. Inspiration, which is what we breathe in, and insight, which helps us see ourselves more clearly. And you have provided both of those today. So I want to thank you. Thank you. I feel so lucky to share that with you. And I hope that everything I offered will be understandable and of use to your listeners. It's my pleasure. If you enjoy this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.